Taking off the mute. The Zoom is now open. I am not functioning at such 100%, which I'm sure most of you are not either since last Shabbos, Shabbos, Torah, whatever. Yeah. Today is the matchmaker's gift. Which is a nice, light um, story with deep enough subjects to it. But the um, but the author of this book, I don't know if anybody's read her other novels. This is the third. Which one did you read? Um, the uh, two, two Family House. The first novel was called The Two Family House. The second one, The Wartime Sisters. And this is the third one. And she tells um, an intergenerational story. And she has a a very nice style. I, have you read it? Did anybody read the book? Okay, okay good. At least, at least if you read the book this time, because last time I think you all read it. Oh, good. Okay. Um, <laughs> and often, yeah, and often, I, often the books aren't that easily available. And but anyways, yeah. Well, I'm so glad. Okay. Um. So yes. Yeah, so it's it's her third book, and um, she's she relatively young woman she has i mean i guess you could read from the, the book jacket that she's uh she has a degree in english and American literature and then she has a law degree from columbia law school and she practiced as a lawyer briefly she did trust in estates law in new york city and um and then she stopped because as she said in an interview i realized that what i really wanted to do was write i just went to law school which the undergraduate degree was in english literature and then i guess she was trying to be practical because you know can you make a living out of writing? And and she did law for a while and really didn't like it. And so um, she's been lucky because her books have been published. Although she said, I listened to an interview with her yesterday and she's, she's very lovely to listen to. And she said, um, you know, somebody once said to me when, when uh, I forget who it was, a famous author said that when asked what makes it success? What kind of advice can you give to us aspiring writers? To like, you're a successful writer, and this writer said, just keep writing. You just write, 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 because some of it maybe will get published, and a lot of it won't. But you just have to keep writing. So she says. So when I get discouraged, and when my manuscripts that I submit to my publishers don't seem to be of interest to them, then I I just keep on and I try. Um, so she she's written this story. Those of you who read it know it's uh, it's told with two timelines, the dual timeline, as she refers to it. And she says in an author's note at the back of the book um, that when she decided to write this um, to write this book, writing a story, she said, "I write historical fiction like that's or whatever time period she decides to write about. It's historical fiction." Uh, but when you write a dual timeline, that means twice as much research because if you're writing historical fiction, you have one timeline. So you, you know, you there's that you're, you're doing a dual timeline. Although in this case, one of them, the you know, the, the earlier part of the story begins in 1910 in on the Lower East Side in New York City, and the modern day part takes place in the mid 1990s New York which was close, which was her own personal experience. So, and set in New York City, and the uh, protagonist of that part of the story is a young woman who's a lawyer. Um, and so that part didn't require too much research. So she said, okay, you know, I don't recall it cheating, but not cheating, but she didn't need to do research on two different time periods. Um, so she's, and she is a best-selling author, by the way, The Two Family House and the Wartime Sisters, were um they're you know they're not um as the Jewish Book Council in their review said about her people those of you readers who like your fiction dark and um complicated will find that this is not the way that she writes because she writes she has a she has a charming lighter style not that she doesn't talk about things you know important things in life, such as matchmaking, because after all, is that not one of the most important things in life? Very definitely it is. And uh, I found a very I found a very nice article on uh, I forget which website this comes from, but it was about matchmaking. And it's to do with, you know, um we begin reading the, the Torah portion of the week. So this past um 
Shabbos Sabbath we began with the beginning, Horatius. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to read the story of the first matchmaker in Jewish history. And that's the story when Abraham decides that he needs to find a wife for his son, um, Isaac. And so he commissions his trusted assistant, Abe, Eliezer, to go and find a wife for the son. And Eliezer is known as the first matchmaker, the first shotgun in Jewish history. And and so, anyways, it's, uh, I'll read it to you afterwards. I thought it was pretty apropos to what she writes about in this story. Um, so where does the book begin? For those of you who haven't read it, the main character of the older part of the story, um, who continues into the 90s for a very little bit, is a, is a well, she's 10 years old. So a young girl by the name of Sarah Glidman. Um, and she comes across, we first meet her on the steamship from Europe to New York City. She's there with her family, her 18-year-old sister, Hindle, and her three rambunctious brothers and her parents. And they're on this steamship, and that's where 10-year-old Sarah makes her first match. She And, and there's this description of how she goes on uh, up to the top deck. To, to come upstairs from the uh, from the, the third class steerage where the where most of the Jews who came across were in and it was not a very appealing place and she goes on board and she sees and and her sister is very miserable her eighteen year old sister because she's left a, a young man back in the town they came from and she's crying and crying and crying and crying um, that she, she because she's so miserable at having to leave the town and this young man who she assumed she'd marry young little kid sister goes upstairs and there's a happens to be a young man there who's very very nearsighted and he's cleaning his glasses. And all of a sudden, 10 year old, this 10 year old little girl, Sarah Lipman, sees a kind of what she describes as a strand of golden light stretching between this young man cleaning his glasses and her sister, Hindle. And something in her makes her realize that maybe, you know, this is the one who's meant to be for my sister. Three months later, we find out that the two of them are happy sister and this young, very nearsighted young man. That's the first match that Sarah Glickman makes. And that's the beginning of her career as a matchmaker. Or the Yiddish word for that is a shut, someone who puts people together, who makes matches. And she, and then, so we're introduced in the first part and so she says, just to, to read you a little bit, Sarah, 1910, so you know when this, when this piece takes place, a matchmaker for this strange new world. Sarah was 10 years old when she made her first match. She had traveled a week, for a week, from Kaloresh to Limbaba with her parents, her sister Hindle, and three unruly brothers to board the giant steamship headed for New York. As the coast faded to a blurry mist, 18-year-old Hindle wailed like a colicky infant. She wept for the village she would never see again for the handsome young man she had left behind. Their mother, who had no patience for tears, pointed to the water that surrounded them on all sides. The ocean is full enough, she said. If you don't stop crying, you'll drown the fish. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure in Yiddish sounds, you know, you can imagine that that's what they were talking. Sound very good. So that's how this first match began. And three months later, as the, this first chapter continues, in New York, Kendall married Aaron, the nearsighted young man in a one-room synagogue on Rivington Street. At the small reception held on the roof of the building, electric lights were strung on tall wooden poles and platters of paint were set out for the guests. Sarah's mother told anyone who would listen that her youngest daughter had been the one to introduce the young lovers. Can you believe it, she said to the guest? I sent her for a handkerchief and she came back with a group. <laughs> a few of the guests shook their heads in disbelief, but most of them smiled or offered their con con congratulations. Such a good girl you have, they said. Such a blessing to her family. When all the cake had been eaten and all the schnapps had been drunk, the rabbi, a stout man in a white fur hat, took Sarah's hand gently and murmured a blessing. Tell me, Rabbi Chernikov said, about the ship. Dozens of men carry handkerchiefs. What if they carry? What is him to help you? Because she had told him the story. A long moment passed before Sarah answered. She chose her words like fruits at the market weighing each one before she spoke. He was different from the other men. 
The others gambled on games of cards, and he stood apart. He was polishing his spectacles. Ah, said the rabbi. So he was the most prudent and scholarly of the men? Sarah shook her head. Not really. He wasn't prudent, only poor. And the spectacle didn't make him more scholarly. He was cleaning the dust off of them and squinting. When I first pointed him the left to him, his eyes were so bad that he couldn't even see her. So you chose someone who could see beyond your sister's physical appearance. Sarah hesitated. Partly, she admitted. Sarah understood that though the rabbi searched for answers, he did not know enough to ask the proper question. She knew that the most important part of her encounter was not what had led her to approach Aaron in the first place, but what she had seen afterward. She did not want to lie to the rabbi, but she was not sure how to explain the phenomenon to him. Eventually, she raised herself onto her toes and whispered the story into his ear. When she described the filament of light she had seen, the rabbi did not seem surprised. Instead, his eyes sparkled with possibility. You have a colleague, he said to Sarah. You are young yet, but it will wait. I don't understand, she said. What do you mean? The light you saw between your sister and her husband was not a trick of the sun. You have been blessed with eyes that can see the light of soulmates reaching for each other. Whether it was the rabbi's words or the sip of brandy her father had given her or the flicker of the strange electric bulb, Sarah's head began to throb. The rabbi's voice was like the late spring rain, soft but steady and persistent. The words he spoke next fixed themselves in her mind and bunged up for the rest of her life. You are a matchmaker, Sarah Glickman, a shot hunter for this strange new world. And that's the and That's how we meet Sarah Glickman, who's 10 years old at the time, who has, who has been told that you have a college. And this is really... The only bit of magical realism, if you want to call this, this filament of gold light. You know, you're thinking, is this going to be a book filled with, I don't know, Isabella Allende or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or other writers who, who have this magical realist style? But no, it is the only thing is the filament of light that she describes Sarah as being able, and this is what guides her when she knows that she has found someone to share. And then second chapter, you move into the second, the, the more modern day part of the story. We meet Abby, who's the granddaughter of Sarah in 1994. And at that point, um, we find her grandmother has just died at age 94. She was 10 when she came in 1910, and she has just died over here. And then we meet the granddaughter. And the granddaughter is the lawyer who has been very close to the grandmother and is um, is devastated by the loss of her beloved grandmothers. So those are going to be the back and forth. It's New York City, basically, just two different eras. And the first one is mainly Lower East Side, except where the Jews lived. The new immigrants came and lived there at that point. That was before, I'm not sure, does anyone remember when the Brooklyn Bridge was built? It was built in, I don't know, anyway, whatever the bright, I like this bit of history, just because everybody lived in the down in the Lower East Side, at least people who didn't have any money. And then when the Brooklyn Bridge was built, you could cross over, and that's why people were able to move to Brooklyn. But till then, there was no bridge, and nobody lived in Brooklyn. And after that, so everybody was still down there, and I'm sure most of you have been at some point to the Lower East Side to go visit the Tenement Museum or you know you walk the street. I think it's kind of in the last few years I enjoyed more of a resurgence of people still do live there, young people live there. Um, but back in the day, it was this crowded, teeming, not very, um, not very beautiful area, but that's where the Jews went. So it was a very Jewish neighborhood. The street signs were all in Yiddish. And she there's a lot of Yiddish in the story. And she says that she as she said in the interview that she doesn't speak Yiddish. Her mother and grandmother used to the author. Her mother and grandmother used to speak Yiddish when they didn't want her, you know, the story when they didn't want the kids to know what they were saying. So they could be talking another language. So she picked a lot of it up, but she said she had help um, in making sure that. The words she used were correct, and the expressions she used were correct. And um, and so she flavors the book. She sprinkles it with Yiddish words, which to me work just fine because they add a certain flavor to the book. And you don't really only look up and translate if you don't know what she's saying. But it's nothing where where it detracts from the flow of the story, especially if one happens to understand most of the words she talks about. And so Sarah 
1910, New York City, this world of pushcart filled streets, crowded tenements, and the beginning of a changing approach, because this is the 20th century, to tra traditions as hundreds of families, just like Sarah's, enter a new country and lifestyle. Why? In search of opportunity. And so as a member of the Jewish faith, Sarah is a, no stranger to the concept of matchmakers. That's how people got married. There was, the, there was a shotgun. And in fact, what's the epigraph at the beginning of the book? I don't know, those of you who read it remember. It's a little quote from Hello, Dolly, the, year, the lyrics of the book, Hello, Dolly. I have always been a woman who arranges things like luncheon parties, poker games, and love. <laughs> and that is the quote from Hello, Dolly. So this is what, this is a book about a woman who arranges things. So Sarah, young Sarah, this is how, this is how in her community, people always thought that was there was the shotgun, just like, you know, you think of, um, and, and the author says, you know, interestingly, people who, to whom the concept of the matchmaker is totally foreign, have seen almost everybody at a certain age anyway, has seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? And yet the matchmaker is Fiddler on the Roof. So she said, when she was doing research for this story, she she said the yes to the matchmaker wasn't completely realistic because the matchmaker really the shotgun would have been a man. And I didn't realize that, that but shotguns were men because it was a profession back then. One made a living out of it because you have to pay for the services of a shotgun. In fact, modern day, I don't know if anybody's watching, then there was this, and the funny part is she's a Jewish matchmaker. I guess we were all watching, or many of us watched Indian matchmaker that. Netflix series? No, yes, I don't know. Anyways, it was really, I watched, it was on what, a couple of years ago, I guess. Um, and I found it fascinating. But in the Jewish, in the Orthodox Jewish community, but so you have J Date is the online version, but there's still the old fashioned idea of having a matchmaker, having a shotgun. And you are supposed to pay the shotgun. And even if the shotgun, so there are professionals who charge who charge fees, like, and I guess I was quite taken aback, but there are fees, you know, $5,000, $10,000, like quite, quite large fees because there are people who really earn their living and work full time at this. So just like, I mean, you have to pay for JJ, right? You have to pay for all these online matchmaking services. So, um, but even if you have an informal matchmaker, you are supposed to give them a gift. Because there is a thing that if you don't show your appreciation, then it's not such a good thing. Like that, I, mean, I guess it's kind of a I don't know, superstitious or the idea that you should really pay the matchmaker. Even if they don't want to charge you and they're not professional, give them a very nice gift to ensure that the match will be a blessed one and a and a lucky one. But she said, but this idea of a woman as a matchmaker, because that's what the story is based on. Because young Sarah is 10 years old when she makes the first match, which was her sister. And she still doesn't tell anybody except the rabbi how she came to do it. Um, but after she slowly, and, remember, and again, she's a young child, after she becomes pretty good at it, well, good, she has this gift. So it's like something is given to her and she just does it, takes advantage of this theme of life that she sees. Um, but she starts to incur the displeasure at the beginning and then the wrath of the men who are the established matchmakers. They're still in 1910 down on the Lower East Side in the Jewish community. And who is this little girl who's like, okay, again, it's fiction. You know, we're not meant to take this, I suppose, with a grain of salt, but it's just an interesting idea of how times were changing. And um, and Sarah knows that the matchmakers where she came from, and she remembers a little bit, that they were all men. And even in this new world, the matchmakers are still men. And they are married, um, which is an important part of the of the requirement to be a matchmaker and they are paid. So none of this applies to this young girl. And even though Sarah confides in Rabbi Shankov about the magic of her sister's romance, how she put it together, she keeps this gift of hers. She tells Rabbi Shankov, but she doesn't tell 
almost no one else, especially those shatanim, the matchmakers, who are in control. I guess they have the, what's the word? They have the monopoly on the uh, the business in her neighborhood on the Lower East Side. And then we come to her granddaughter. More than 80 years later, Sarah's granddaughter, Abby, this young woman in the modern day, the mid-1990s part of the story, she has also made a career of love, albeit in a different way. She's made a career of the dissolution of love so far, right? She is a successful divorce attorney. I mean, she's young and upcoming, and but seems to be seems to be on the path to success as a lawyer. She works for a rather un, you know, this what's a tiger, tiger woman kind of lawyer, her boss. Um, one of this who is one of the city's most well-known and cutthroat star lawyers. And so Abby, as opposed to her grandmother, is aware, although no, I shouldn't say because her grandmother was aware of the ugly side of things as well when the matches didn't work or when people were didn't behave as they should. But her granddaughter's career is as a divorce lawyer. So that, you know, by definition, when marriages have gone bad, that's the aspect of love that granddaughter Abby has chosen her career on. She herself, we find out, Abby's parents had divorced. She is the product of a failed marriage. And she knows that she has, Abby, that she has chosen her career specifically as a result of her father's behavior, her father's adultery and mistreatment of her mother. This is her antidote to what she perceives, what Abby perceives, young Abby, she's 26 when we meet her, to love's toxicity. And yet she adores her matchmaker, love-obsessed grandmother, Sarah. When the story opens, Sarah, grandmother, has been retired officially from the matchmaking business for 40 years. And yet she still delights in putting her nose into places where she feels she can be of help. Whether it means telling Abby that her college boyfriend isn't the one, predicting the fallout of the royal marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, or devouring the gossip rags and deciding for once and for all that Hollywood's most fiery couples aren't done quite just yet. Despite their hiring of divorce lawyers, Sarah has an opinion which she shares with her granddaughter. Every bit as full of life and fire as she was when she first showed up to help raise Abby and her younger sister 14 years earlier. Because when Abby's father made the announcement one day in a restaurant where he took where his wife and the two daughters out for ice cream. And after that, Abby is unable to stomach ice cream until the very end of the story because she still associates it with that luncheon when her father announced that he was leaving her mother. Um, she and Sarah, the grandmother, comes back from Florida, back from her retirement in warm Florida to help her daughter take care of the two girls because her daughter is now on her own. So the two girls, Sarah and her sister, have grown up with their loving grandmother as very much part of their life. So Sarah, though, at age 94, is still a force to be reckoned with, which is why Abby is so shocked when her grandmother passes away peacefully one night in her sleep. This is at the beginning of the story. And Sarah had always told her granddaughter, one day, my brilliant skeptic, I will be gone and all of my stories will belong to you. But Abby has no idea just how literal this warning is until in a, um, in a let's say, uh, something that many authors use or a number of authors have used, boxes of journals show up. You know, that's a pretty, but not uncommon uh, technique that authors use when they want a character to, un to, uh, to unravel, to find out about an ancestor's past. So in this case, 
boxes of her grandmother's journal are in the grandmother's apartment, and the grandmother, Sarah, has wanted Abby, her granddaughter, to have them. Expecting, and what did she expect? She, when she, in her grandmother's diaries were stories of her mother's life and her love story with her, her grandfather, Sarah's husband, Gabe. Um, she's kind of disappointed when she first opens them, and she sees that the notebooks look more like catalogs. Their names and ages and professions, temperaments of people that her grandmother knew as a girl and a young woman. So it's obvious that Abby has inherited these matchmaking journals because these are the Shotman's, you know, notebooks. And, and if you uh, uh, read you something in this more modern, up-to-date one, as Aliza Ben. So I don't know if anybody saw. So this new, there was this new series. So there was Indian Matchmaking was the first series, and then Netflix put together another one called. Jewish math, Jewish matchmaking, Jewish matchmaking, Jewish matchmaking. And did anybody see it? It's, it's very funny. And the woman who hosts it is a woman called Aliza Ben Shalom. Anyway, it turns out that the authors know at the back of the book that she met with her and she she got in touch with her and she asked her opinion, the author of the book, with this Aliza Ben Shalom, who's a very well-known matchmaker. She moved to Israel a few years ago, but she comes back and forth between, and she was here. Oh, yes, right. So, Did anybody yeah. see her? Yeah. Oh, you went to see her? So she was here at She's uh, quite a show person. Chabad? Leola. Leola. Yeah. Chabad brought her in, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, she's yeah. quite a show person, which is why she was chosen to be, you know. 600 people in the audience. Right, because yeah. I know I think my daughter wanted to go, and then they said no, it was sold out. Didn't get you tickets early enough. Oh, so yeah, I saw everybody on there. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to be seen, but I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wear a mask, maybe nobody would recognize you. No, it didn't work like that. Eh? No, yeah, but she's yeah, I know. I she's I mean I've seen her interview. I looked up interviews with her. She is definitely, which is why she was good for the Netflix show because um, I think I heard. I don't know if you would notice that. Rabbi, the rabbi of um, Chabad, um, Chabad on, yes, very, very uh, They asked the Netflix when they were looking for a, a host, like to be MC of this show, they asked him, and he said, No, thank you. I don't think this is for me. And she got this job. So she seems to be a natural, yeah, to have your personality to be able to do that. I don't know how successful she is. Apparently, she, she is from what I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, but it was funny because she's mentioned in the credits in the author's note that I that I contacted Elisa Van Scholl when I asked her about matchmaking. So, um, um, yeah, so, so Sarah. Has leave, has left these journals to her granddaughter, who looks at them and all she sees are you know names and numbers and, and ages and professions and temperaments, and um and and Abby doesn't understand what her grandmother wanted from her, who is this staunch skeptic, doesn't believe in love, is anti-romantic. She's seen the toxicity of her parents' marriage, and she's not going to get into the same thing um, until she meets someone. At one of one of a, a young woman, Jessica Cooper, and she uh, she's an eye doctor, um, and that's where she makes her first. Where Abby realizes that maybe she has inherited this same gift that her grandmother has had, and it turns out, I mean, part of the story is that this young woman, Jessica, the ophthalmologist. Was a product of one of Grandma Sarah's early matches, uh, at where she's matched up a young medical student and a friend of her sister's. Um, and shortly before she died, the grandmother Sarah had agreed to come out of retirement to find Jessica her match. But then she passes away, and she had never been able to locate the soulmate for this Jessica, the granddaughter of one of her early matches. So it's as if she has bequeathed this task to her granddaughter. And um, but granddaughter Abby is really not interested in this. She has a very demanding job, uh, a very demanding, difficult boss. Um, and among her, the current things that she's working on is a prenup, a prenuptial agreement between a 50-something celebrity designer and his 25-year-old model fiance. Um, Another thing she's working on is the fourth divorce of an emotional hotelier and her poet husband. 
Abby is just, um, she says, no, 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 no. She doesn't want to get involved with this, even if this is what her grandmother wanted for her. But she also starts to become very interested by her grandmother's stories. And as she continues to read through her grandmother's journals, learning love stories about the princess of New York City's Pickle King, the princess, the daughter of New York City's Pickle King, um, and others. And when she, if you look up, I know those of you who had the book and looked up, but the author's notes are always interesting. In her note, she says, for those of you who are interested, I recommend the following New York Times articles that helped to inspire me writing this book, The Matchmaker's Gift. And as a, just as an example, the, um, here are some of the titles of these articles that she used in her research. Um, okay, so there are the more modern ones, but Carp Wedding Glory Dazzles East Sod from June 24th, 1909. New York Times, by the way. And another article, Rates for Husbands on the Increase. Prices for desirables now run as high as $25,000. Can you imagine this backing? And this was an article, So the East Side Shopkins, So the East Side Shopkins Say. Article from January 16, 1910. $25,000 in 1910. Um, another article from 2016. Rivington Street sees war. Rival restaurant men cut prices on the succulent dish. This is like a real headline from the New York Times. You know, so when you had this finished war and you thought, oh, how fanciful, you know, very fanciful writing. Apparently it was not. I mean, I guess they were two men who had the similar kinds of restaurants, two families, and so they were competing with each other, but and another headline: um, Jewish matchmakers form protected union in Warsaw, March third, nineteen twenty nine. So that was back in Warsaw, but that was nineteen twenty nine, and there was a union for it in Poland, of, um, still in Poland, nineteen twenty nine, but of of Shotkins. Then the articles continued. An article from nineteen forty eight, April nineteen forty eight, a Times article. The headline was. 600 an outdoor wedding rabbi and bride met in u.s after fleeing from Poland. another article 1949 and there were several articles post-war articles about couples who met after the war and how shotguns helped them meet so she really did a lot of research and the stuff the the beam of light as i said is the magical realist part of the story but the rest of it seems to have you know research she has researched her book um, so this the Pickle King and the Knish War there, her stories about her own grandfather, and she starts to find, this is Abby, our 26-year-old young woman skeptic about love and matchmaking for short, she starts to find surprising parallels to her own life as a single woman on the Upper West Side and her cases, her work cases, her divorce cases, and the people she meets, the couples she meets, as she's working on these cases. And in a shocking moment of clarity, I guess the pun, she spots the same listening light that sealed her grandmother's first match. The only problem with this beam of light that she sees is that it suggests the connection between a young man that she's sort of kind of dating and really likes doesn't quite feel he's the one for her, but he's a really nice guy. Except, who is it with? Where does the beam of light go? Not to her. To one of her boss's most demanding clients, that 25-year-old young woman who's engaged to the 50-something-year-old celebrity um, designer. And so this for Abby, this is, no, no. This doesn't, even though, you know, she's doubting that she ever really saw this, but if she really did see this, this is not a match that is supposed to go. And she's nowhere near ready to accept that she has inherited her grandmother's gift. But she's even less prepared to accept the most beautiful, expensive gift of all, which is her own love story. And unfortunately for her, she is going to need both to serve her most difficult clients, it turns out, as well as to forge her own path in life and eventually love. So the book has a, has a nice happy ending, or at least a very hopeful ending. 
And the author shows that again and again, well, this is her third novel, she is a very skilled craftsperson when it comes to putting together immersive and um, well-researched historical settings and populating them with multifaceted characters. Again, this is writing, as I said, it's it's easy to read, uh, even if the topics are the subject that she writes about are important serious subjects, there's nothing that, it, there's a lightness to her writing. Um, and in this book, she did something that she did not do in her other books, which was that she added this element of magic. And the book is not a fantasy by any means, but it does kind of, it has this little bit of magic that is matched very well with her characters. And these characters do battles with feminism, religion, ambition, and power in her novel. And that's what gives it more emotional heft than it otherwise might have had. So it's, a, you could say, a warm and uplifting and charming story that will leave you, you know, feeling good. So that's the, the basic outline of the story. The, one of the things I wanted to talk about was where she, where she, Abby rediscovers that her grandmother had come back to her matchmaking vocation. So what happens in the story too? So the, the chapters go back and forth and the, the 1994 chapter where Abby is working on these cases that she has to figure out among her couples who are getting divorced, um, should they really be getting divorced? And it turns out that she feels that they shouldn't, but you know, what kind of a lawyer is she? Is she going against her boss's wishes? She gets herself fired at the end of the story because she goes against her boss's wishes. Her boss is a divorce, runs a divorce law firm. She doesn't want her employee, this young upstart, going and not getting the couple's divorce, not writing. I mean, she's she's supposed to be drafting prenuptial agreements, or she's supposed to be drafting divorce agreements, not making the couple stay together or rematching them with other people. But of course, this is fiction, and Abby is doing that, and she's the granddaughter of, 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 of her grandmother, the matchmaker. Um, but in the Sarah part, and of course, I think maybe, I don't know what you think, but by definition, usually the period when you have these dual timeline stories, the if, if well done and if authentically portrayed and well researched, the older setting is often the more interesting one because it tells us about a different time and place than modern day, even though 1994 is by what almost 30 years now, but still not ancient history. Like we all remember this, um, us of a certain age. And um, but she, so it's really interesting to read. And this whole idea of these men. Who got who got so upset again? I don't think that this fiction that there was this young girl who was taking away their clients and making matches and not charging anything, and they take her to a Jewish court of law to a basin, and she has to stand there. And it's at that court of law, that basin, where she, Sarah, meets her own future husband, a young um, a lawyer who works for a legal aid a legal aid uh, clinic, which and 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 grandma. This is how grandmother meets hers. And, and, you know, what happens, I mean, there's, anyway, I want to, you'll, you'll need the story, but it's cute the way she realizes that, how she herself realizes in the book, who her Bashir is supposed to be, like, what gives it away? It's not so much a beam of light, but it's something else that her grandmother, um, or that, that she was told. So, the, um, but then after, so when does Abby, uh, when does Abby find out that her grandmother came back to her matchmaking vocation? It was in the post-war years of the 1940s when rabbis, oh, and so what happens? Grandma Sarah has to fight, she has to go and appear in front of the basin, which is three, three rabbis ruling, and this group of angry men, shakhanim, matchmakers, who claim that this upstart of a young woman has no business ruling their business. And who is she? And tradition said, you know, she, she's single, she's a female. Like, this is not right. Um, and she she wins her case in court, and she goes on in her way to do what she does. But and then she does it, and then she retires. Back in the and then again in the 1940s, she comes out of retirement because there's meaning 
and it's Holocaust survivors. And it's not developed much in the story. You know, if it would have been a different book, the book is meant here to look at the two characters of Sarah and Abby. But that, that's a very interesting idea of the, and as we all know, you know, the matches that were made among survivors after the Second World War and how those stories came to be and how many people, and that's really a tribute to the resilience of the human spirit. I mean, how many, how many marriages took place in the TV camps in Germany after, you know, when the Bergen-Belsen babies were born after the war? Like, it's really remarkable. And so there was this whole thing, and that's why she, she has these articles, New York Times articles in 1946 and 1948 about couples who met. So in her fiction, um, Linda Royden has her, has Sarah, the matchmaker character, making matches between these survivors and the rabbis of the community come to her and say, use your gift, whatever gift you have, because she doesn't share with them this beam of light idea, because that sounds too ridiculous, but just whatever you have this talent to make matches, please use them for these Holocaust survivors in order to continue the Jewish race after the Holocaust, the, the, the Jewish people in America after the Holocaust. Um, so there are things there that, and then as well, we also find out that Sarah, as her granddaughter Abby works on divorces at the beginning, that's what she's doing, which is the, the failed side of matchmaking and love, her grandmother also has an ability, just as she can see who's meant to go with who, she can also sense when something is wrong, when they are not supposed to be together, and she can advise against matches that other people might think are excellent ones that she has a feeling no. And she also senses when things are, are, are not going well. And there's a small example of in the in, in her later years when she this young woman who she sees coming with some bruises and she asks her what's going on and oh nothing, I just fell, you know, it's like, oh your eye is black, yeah, I banged into something. Um and she's able to use her 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 gift, her matchmaker's gift in order to help women in abusive relationships as well. So there's some serious, not exactly, not really developed much because that's not point of the book, but there's there's some some stuff like that as well. Um, so the, but the magical realism, as I said, is really pretty well limited to, to this theme of life. And, um, and the book ends, said, I will tell you the details, those of you who haven't read it, but it's, it's a nice ending. Um, uplifting and hopeful, and you are left with at the at the end of the oh, and there's a nice part I wanted to share with you in the middle of the book. It's 1918, and it's in the Sarah section of the book, and it's the one time or the first time that young Sarah, so how old would she be? She was 18 at the time in 1918. She she questions her colleague there at the very beginning. Don't forget, she's only 18 years old. For the first time since her sister had gotten married, Sarah Glickman questioned her call. It wasn't that she doubted her abilities. She was as certain as ever of her gift. It was just that the heartbreak of having to give up Nathan, that was the young man who she thought she was destined to be with, who she got the, the, the sign that no, when she sees the scene of life, going from who she thought was her intended to another woman. Um, and she wondered if this was part of the reason that her father had wanted her to get married before making matches. And this is an interesting thing because traditionally, as she says in the book, and it really it was, it used to be traditional, that matchmakers have to be married themselves. That was so, and her father had said to Sarah, you should be married yourself. Why? Was he, was he, was he? predicting the melancholy that might come on his daughter if she would, there would be things that she would see or be involved with and it would make her unhappy? Had he foreseen that her special abilities might force her to lie to someone that she really felt for? And so she decides again to pay a visit to Rabbi Shenkov. She was the man back in the first time when she, she um, confides when he asks her, Make that match between your sister, you know, the 10 year old, and she confides in him that she sees this beam of light. And she goes, she goes to him and she says, uh, What's the problem? 
And she says, um, and she explains to him what happens. And he said, um, like, why? I thought you were, and she said, well, I saw something, Rabbi. And he says, ah, your gift again. And she says, yeah, but some days it is no gift at all. Sometimes it feels more like a curse. Mm -hmm. And the rabbi says to her, my dear, you bear a heavy burden. One day, one only you can know the weight of it. The only way for you to ease it is to share your suffering with someone else. Perhaps this is why you have come to see me. And he waits. And she doesn't know. She feels embarrassed. She doesn't know what to say. Um, and then she explains to him that she saw that this, that this Nathan, who she thought was for her, she saw a sign, her sign that it was for somebody else. And, uh, and she even tell, you know, knows who it was. And was this the real curse of the matchmaker? That to know that people who were so in love were unlikely to listen to almost anyone who professed to have superior knowledge. Like, did that mean that you know, when you were so smitten that anybody could tell you things and you're not thinking straight. Was this why the Shatanim had insisted that anyone making matches must be married? Maybe there was something to that. Did they believe that the temptation to use their influence for personal romantic gain could be too great? Sarah knew that being married was not a guarantee of good or honest behavior because many of the Shatanim um, maybe they didn't lie outright, but they were prone to exaggeration and half proofs and artful manipulation. Like, you know, is she good looking? The shopping might be at. Oh, she has lovely brown hair. Um, is she, you know, like, don't you could say saying the best of people, but yeah. so Sarah was not like these things. At best, their pairings were based on a mix of good intentions careful research, and a little bit of luck. At worst, they were based on money alone. Regardless, the goal was always marriage, and marriage was not the same as love. What the Shadhanim could never understand was that for Sarah, a match was not something to be made. Either love existed or it did not. What Sarah saw, she saw. What she knew, she knew. Her method was as pure and unpredictable as the first purple crocus to emerge in this room. Okay, so she agrees. Yes, the rabbi is right. Maybe her gift could be a burden, but she couldn't shirk her obligation. And the rabbi said, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, and she said, but how am I ever going to be able to find someone for myself if I'm always worried about what I'm going to see in his future? What if, you know, one day, like I marry him and then I see this beam of light going to some other woman? Like, this is not good for me. So, Rabbi Chankov blinked his eyes. He's the wise rabbi she goes to see. He says, I don't think so. I think that you learned something very valuable in this process. And um, he said, Sarah, when we met you, you were 10 years old. You were a young girl blessed with the rarest of talents, a gift most of the world could never imagine. Could never imagine. Despite your youth, you understood its significance. And yet, we mumbled, and yet what? And yet, my dear, you were still a child, a brilliant child, but a child nonetheless. Of course, the child has no stranger to love. She loves her parents, she loves her family, she loves her, I love her teachers or her friends, but you don't know the kind of romantic life. Um, but your gift led you to believe that love was always free of pain, always joyful and uncomplicated. It taught you that love comes in a flash of light, that it is always remarkable and instantaneous. But in all of this, I'm afraid you were very much mistaken. And then he tells her something very um, helpful that she's going to remember, this young Sarah. He says to her, you know that my wife died a long time ago, years before I came to this country. But I never told you how we met or how she came to be my bride. We had barely spoken before we were married, and our first months together were far from happy. Of course, it was a different time. That's the way things were done. But it was almost two years after our wedding that Ruth told me that she loved me for the first time. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? It kind of makes this sign, do you love me? Do I love you? Do you love me? Do I love you? Oh, yeah, that's always good. Anyway, so he says here, is this young Sarah, 18-year-old Sarah says, what happened? And the rabbi says to her, 
Her brother was forced to kill a cow, and he brought us a piece of meat for our dinner, which was an enormous luxury. Rivka, my young bride, had no idea how to cook it. We never had a piece of meat. We were very poor. And he stops to smile. He stopped to smile at the memory. Our little home was filled with so much smoke that we were forced to eat our meal outside because she didn't know how to cook this and it was burnt. She left the charred meat on her plate, but I ate my whole portion and I told her it was delicious. That night, she kissed my cheek and she told me how much she had grown to love me. He brushed away the tear that had fallen onto his cheek. On the day that my wrist had died, I knew for certain that I would never love another woman again. Sarah considered the rabbi's words. I wish I had been at your wedding. I wonder what I would have seen. The rabbi's friends, who can say? Love is not always a straight, shining light. Sometimes love is a shady path full of unpredictable turns. And so that was a very nice bit as she talks about how this gift, also, you know, the matchmaker's gift, at times could have also been, you know, as she says, a matchmaker's gift. But she perseveres, and so the story goes on. I found this, I was going to say to you, I found this article on matchmaking. So that's the book, and it's filled with, and the, and the author said she wrote it. Um, those of you who read the book and read the author's note, well, sorry for if I repeat. She said that in March of 2020, when the pandemic began, her college-age daughter um, and her roommate were, it was March 2020, remember March 2020, when the whole world closed down, so her daughter and roommate came to live. The author lives in a place called Chappaqua, which is north and west, just north of New York City. Um, so her, her college-age daughter and roommate came home and lived lived with them. And the and the author said it was really nice because until then it had been my son who was a senior in college and my husband and my dog. And now I have these two young women, these two intelligent, um, curious, and, and, and very fun young women. Okay, the circumstances were unusual, but at least they had the two of them. It wasn't just one, so they had, did their college classes online when that started to get organized. And um, we spent the whole spring together navigating our strange new normal. Um, her husband is a lawyer, she says. My husband learned how to take depositions over Zoom. My son had a virtual high school graduation. We baked a lot and took the dog for long walks. And I was working on a novel, but it wasn't coming together the way I had that summer, my daughter's roommate, Adele, told me about her grandmother who had once been a matchmaker, an Orthodox Jewish matchmaker, a chocolate. Her grandmother had been such a success that, in fact, in 1997, uh, sorry, 1977, the New York Times ran an article about her, this daughter's roommate who was living there for that whole spring. The article stuck with me and eventually inspired me to think of a matchmaker story of, of my own. So that's how this book came about. She was working on a completely different book, and then she heard about this idea. And she said, I discussed the idea with my agent, who spoke to my editor, and they were very enthusiastic and encouraged me that I have to put aside the novel I've been working on and focus on this new idea. Um, she said, after reading about an article called Love on the Lower East Side, I decided to anchor my fictitious matchmaker in that same neighborhood during the 1910s and 20s. Although the pandemic made it not possible for me to travel to the Lower East Side at the time, I was aided in my research by online collections of the Tenement Museum, the Center for Jewish History, the New York Public Library, and of course the museum at Elwood School. But it was from these sources, as well as others, that I learned about the wedding of the Pickle Millionaire, the real Knish War of 1916, and the formation of matchmaker unions. In my novel, I reimagined these events and altered them to best suit my story. Anyway, she goes on to say this. So this is this is what got her, um, and she goes on to describe some more of the research that she gives these articles. And she actually, I didn't look this one up, but I think I'm going to after this finding a fine catching a cat for Brooklyn's Orthodox Jews that night, January 1977. So that must have been the article her roommate's, uh, her daughter's roommate, grandmother, who was the shotgun there in Brooklyn. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's easy to read. It's a lovely book. It's just the kind of story that when you shouldn't be looking at the news, I guess, about what is going on, read this if you would like something a little bit, you know, uplifting and cheering. Um, so this article that I found on matchmaking, I was looking up articles to see about matchmaking. So it's also, it was a commentary on 
the Torah portion when Eliezer, when Abraham sends his loyal servants and assistant Eliezer to go find a matchmaker. Um, and so the, this rabbi who's writing the article says, um, what decision can we make that is more faithful than the choice of a lifetime mate? From that decision unfurls, or can unfurl, years of happiness, successful child rearing, the blessing of a home filled with learning, respect, and holiness, or not. Finding the right mate can be fraught with uncertainty, a decision of remarkable moment, so important, so weighty, so meaningful, the decision, that sometimes it is a wonder that any of us manage to do so. Our tradition is very clear when it comes to marriage. It's not supposed to be a transactional pers perspective, let's say, like the English gentry who married, you know, for political uh, reasons or matching of wealth and stature. It's not supposed to be a, simply a wedding of family and assets. It's supposed to be, it's considered something very, very holy and very, very important. And we do hold that each of us has a true soulmate with whom we are supposed to share our lives. That's the expression share, someone who is meant for you. However, the task of recognizing who that special person is and engaging in the act of bravery necessary to make the connection is not for the weak of heart, writes this rabbi. I mean, this was before the book was written. He's just writing about the Torah portion of the week. Our perfect match might cross our path 100 times a day, or she might have, be happening to visit family and crosses our path but once. We might share a plane, a railway car, we might not look up from reading something at the right moment to find ourselves looking into the eyes of the one that God has chosen for us as our beloved and miss it. Or they might be right there in front of us that we do not see. There are so many opportunities to miss the moment when we realize our perfect match. So he says, so our tradition has said the risk of not finding the perfect match is too great to lead to chance encounters. The great personal relationship drama of our lives is too essential to trust even our own transitory passions, the sudden lightness in our hearts or our own fleeting hopes and dreams. So in our tradition, Abraham, as Abraham turns to his trusted servant to find a match for Isaac, we turn to the matchmaker, the shotgun, to ensure our perfect match. And in this age of J-Date and, I don't know, all kinds of dating apps and, 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 and J-Swipes and bar scenes, it seems that finding a match is not easy, hasn't made it any easier. But do we really believe that finding the life made that God intends for us is any more or less difficult now than in the past? Imagine how difficult it must have been from Abraham who's trying to find a soulmate for his one beloved son. He lives very far from his family. And he's trying to find the match for his son who could perpetuate the values and the ideals um, that he, Abraham, has. So then he sends Eliezer, but do you, I don't know if you remember the story. So what Eliezer, the trusted servant, says to his master, I have a daughter. What about me? What about, you know, like, why do you have to go send me off to your family? My daughter, she's not good enough for you. And... Um, and, and, and that's like a, that's an interesting part of that Torah portion. And it's not because that's not. And, and Abraham says, no, you know, please go like I have instructed you. And that's where he meets Rivka. That's where he meets Rebecca. Um, and that's the first shot to the story. So, um, so this rabbi continues in this article and says um, that the need for wise and in, insightful matchmakers has not lessened in our modern age. Or, the, or we shouldn't believe that the potential for deviousness and trickery among the Shakanan has lessened either. We would be very foolish to think that the pitfalls for find, of finding an honest marriage broker have lessened since back in the days when Eliezer tried to suggest his own daughter to Abraham. Um, and this rabbi writes, he says, when I shared with my colleagues that I wanted to write an article about matchmakers, about Shakanan, I was given a great deal of advice, most of it directed to the point. Be careful, tread lightly, as colleague after colleague shared horror stories of matches gone wrong. And so he says, how can we highlight what goes right when this very difficult task is engaged? 
He says, you look up on the internet, different sites suggest many ways to be a good matchmaker in all kinds of articles. And then he says, I, I, I remember a woman who is a matchmaker. He said, I remember from Pittsburgh uh, many years ago, and she's been a matchmaker for a while. And she, um, and he said to her, and she said to him that she has five points to being a good shot. The five P's, she says, be patient, positive, persistent, persuasive, and pragmatic. And what's her bit of advice here? So I, I didn't bring a matchmaker, but I'll, I'll you know, share some advice with you instead. So she says, this is from a long time shotgun. She tells him, she tells the rabbi writing this article. Every time you meet somebody who is not married and you are impressed with, you feel that they're a mesh, think, try and think of somebody you can set them up with. Write down their name and their contact information. Two, keep a list of everyone that you know is single and add to it as you meet new people. Make two lists, one of the men and one of the women, and write down what you liked about them. Be proactive on behalf of your single friends. Be persistent. Always follow through with an idea. Put thought into your match ideas. Be respectful of the decisions that singles make and do not second guess them or give them unsolicited advice. So this is very good. Good advice from this matchmaker. Do not push them into dating someone that they do not want to go out and do not ever make them feel if that, that if they don't go out with this person, they will never marry. Value their judgments. Be discreet. Guard the privacy of the singles who are healthy and do not repeat the details of their dates to anyone else. Don't think that you have to be a proven matchmaker in order to set people up. Anyone can set up a match as long as you persevere and use some common sense and compassion, which he instructs him to. So there you go, some tips on, we should all try to be matchmakers and we should all be privileged to make some matches. And I heard something from I know it's that if you make um, this truly really get where I heard this that someone who's made three matches, I don't know if it applies to professionals, I guess that's a lot more. If you make three matches, then your place in heaven is guaranteed. So that's something to think about as Anyway, thank you very much. And we wish you a good day, a good month, and we hear good news. Yeah. Yeah. All of us.